Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the mid-15th century, France was ruled by Louis XI, otherwise known as Louis the Prudent, but he was also known as Louis the Cunning and the Universal Spider because he was always spinning plots and looking for conspiracies. When it came to dissent and wars, he was a brutal sort. Being a despot is hard work, and sometimes you need cheering up, which is why he challenged Abbé de Bang a builder of things, to create a brand new musical instrument just for his amusement. The result was the Piganino, a keyboard that required a number of pigs of varying sizes. Each pig was laid out on a flat surface, smallest to largest. Above the hind end of each pig was a spike connected to a piano-like keyboard. Pressing a key, the corresponding pig would be spiked, resulting in an oink of a certain note. It was thus possible to play a tune by poking the pigs. It didn't sound very good, but it worked, and Louis XI found it very funny. The pigs, of course, did not. Music and technology have always had an interesting relationship. Sometimes it's harmonious and wonderful. Other times, like with the Piganino, there's a hideous clash. However, the Piganino, invented 600 years ago, was the forerunner of future music-related technologies like sampling and sequencing and synthesis. The tech, or at least some of the concepts, would eventually win out. The Piganino was prescient. If we step back and look at the history of science, math, and engineering, and the practice of creating the art of music, we'll see that every time the two things intersect, music and technology, tech almost always comes out the winner, which is okay. Sometimes that seems radical, evil, transgressive, impure, and corrupting, but eventually turns out to be a pretty cool deal, and music is the better for it. Here are some stories about the clashes between tech and music. I'll lay out the facts, and you decide if these were good things or bad things. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Craftwork setting things up for this talk on music versus tech and how tech almost always seems to win, and music also ends up being the better for it. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. Change in progress can be very, very scary. 
If you're young, you can bob and weave and probably adapt. But the older you get, the more this seeps in. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. Musicians, people who spend their lives learning to be proficient at playing, composing, and performing, can be naturally suspicious when it comes to change. No one wants to devote years to a craft only to see everything upended. There's often pushback and sometimes outright rebellion, but in the end, there is no stopping progress. Let me show you what I mean. At the turn of the 1900s, the big technological enemy in the eyes of some was recorded music, the ability to capture a performance for all time. A song could now be summoned at any time by anyone simply by placing a record on a gramophone. And this, according to some, was a disaster for music and would inevitably lead to widespread social decline and chaos. Here's a piece of music called the Liberty Bell. You'll recognize it. So yeah, that's the theme from Monty Python's Flying Circus, but it's actually a march composed in 1893 by American John Philip Sousa. At the time, military music was all the rage, with its big brass instruments and 2-4 rhythms pounded out on multiple snare and bass drums. It, it kind of was the heavy metal of its era, sort of. The, the point is that this was powerful, rousing music, and people really liked it at the time. Sousa was the composer of over 130 of these marches, along with many other pieces of music that are still being used today. And he believed that music was something that should only be experienced live. The new talking machines of the turn of the 20th century, gramophones and phonographs that played recordings, were nothing short of evil. In 1906, he wrote an article for Appleton's magazine and the title of the article was The Menace of Mechanical Music. Let me quote. Sweeping across the country with the speed of a transient fashion in slang or Panama hats, political war cries, or popular novels, comes now the mechanical device to sing for us a song or play for us a piano in substitute for human skill, intelligence, and soul. I foresee a marked deterioration in American music and musical taste, an interruption of the musical development of the country, and a host of other injuries to music in its artistic manifestations. Sousa wanted these new machines and the recordings they played banned. He even appeared before the U.S. Congress to make his argument. The talking machines are going to ruin the artistic development of music in this country, he said. When I was a boy, in front of every house in the summer evenings, you would find young people together singing the songs of the day or old songs. Today, you hear these infernal machines going night and day. We will not have a vocal cord left. The vocal cord will be eliminated by a process of evolution, as was the tale of man when he came from the ape. So, uh, yeah, a bit extreme. Not only would recorded music discourage people from taking up music, he thought, it would put musicians out of work. I mean, if you could summon up a song anytime you wanted, instead of going someplace to hear it live, well, that was awful. Furthermore, a recording froze a performance for all time, and that frozen performance would become the standard version. 
improvisation, improvement, and evolution of that piece of music would come to an end. Music would become stale and boring. And for years, Sousa refused to conduct any orchestras in any recording situations, proudly saying that, I have never been in the gramophone company's office in my life. But by the time he died in 1932, recorded music was everywhere. You could buy a record for as little as 30 cents. Instead of a couple of hundred people hearing a performance played live, that same song could be distributed to millions and millions. So imagine how surprised he'd be to see the kind of interesting interpretations of his music that have been recorded. Like, um, oh, how about this metal version of his Stars and Stripes Forever? The next great technological threat came in the 1920s as the result of this new thing called radio. Experiments with radio broadcasting had begun around 1900, and at first it was unregulated chaos as amateurs experimented with the new technology. When World War I came along, governments took control for themselves as this tech was far too powerful to leave in the hands of civilians. But by 1922, radio broadcasting had been released from military control and a whole new communication industry was being born. It was the broadcasting boom. The question was, what to broadcast? Well, baseball games seemed fine. Election results, sermons, soap operas, variety shows, comedy, news, educational programs, and music. Radio stations began carrying live performances from concert halls, hotel ballrooms, churches, and from their very own purpose-built studios. People across vast distances could enjoy classical music, opera, hymns, jazz, and blues simply by turning on their radios. It was magical. Radio listening grew from maybe hundreds of amateurs at the end of World War I to millions upon millions by the end of the 1920s. This, however, created a problem for record companies. If you could get all the music you wanted right into your home just by turning on a radio, who would bother buying photograph records? Plus, with radio, you didn't have to get up every three minutes to flip over the record or select a new one. When you got music from the radio, you never had to worry about broken or scratched records. Radio meant that you didn't have to buy new records. And radio meant that you didn't have to travel and buy a ticket to hear music live. Radio also freaked out musicians. Why bother going out to see live music anymore if it came directly to you? And how much money were they going to lose if radio made it possible for people to stop buying records? This resulted in a bunch of lawsuits in a number of countries as record companies tried to make it illegal for radio stations to play records as part of their broadcast day. They even started labeling records not licensed for broadcast. You may still find old records with that warning on it. The first ruling stated that if a radio station bought a record, well, they had every right to play it for its audience. So they did. But we'll come back to that in just a bit. Meanwhile, a couple of interesting things happened. First, back then, radio preferred broadcasting live music as opposed to records, which frankly sounded like crap. That ensured a livelihood for at least some musicians who got radio gigs. Stars could make up to $5,000 a week in the 1920s. Second, record companies noticed something of a weird thing. Counterintuitive, this was. When a song got played on the radio, sales went up. People wanted to own music so they could listen on their own terms, as well as getting music from the radio. This pushed everyone closer together. Phonograph companies started making machines that ran on electricity instead of wind-up models. 
New electric methods of recording were introduced in 1925 with microphones and amplifiers and such that resulted in better sound, certainly closer to the audio quality of live music played over the radio. And by the end of the 1920s, you could buy phonograph and radio combo units for your home. Third, some compromises were struck. For example, this marked the beginning of something called needle time with the BBC, which was a deal with the Musicians' Union. It restricted the BBC to playing only a certain amount of recorded music during any 24-hour period, thereby ensuring that the Beeb would play either live music or recordings the BBC made themselves in their studios or elsewhere. And as recently as 1967, the BBC could only devote five hours a day to playing commercially available records. Needle time restrictions weren't fully removed until 1988. This is why the BBC has such an amazing archive of recordings that go back decades. Everyone from The Beatles to Bob Marley to Joy Division to Tears for Fears and literally thousands of other artists were invited to make records at the Beeb so they could get around the whole needle time thing. The most famous of these recordings are the Peel Sessions, overseen by DJ John Peel. He brought in hundreds of cool bands all through the 70s, 80s, and 90s to record live off the floor at the BBC. The Smiths, R.E.M., New Order, The Fall, Echo and the Bunnymen, Susie and the Banshees, The Buzzcocks, the list is almost endless. Here's something from May 23, 1972, when an artist on the ascent named David Bowie dropped in for a session with his band, The Spiders from Mars. Let's go back to that fight between musicians, record labels, and radio in the 1920s. Even though the recorded music industry couldn't prevent radio stations from playing records, they did have something of a point. If radio was going to make playing records part of their business model, how they made money, well, then those who made records should get a piece of the action, right? And copyright law dictated that holders of the copyright controlled the rights to perform publicly for profit, which basically describes radio playing records. Further exacerbating problems was the rise of talkies, movies with sound. In the silent era, movie theaters employed musicians to provide a live soundtrack. Now that movies came with soundtracks built in, all those people at the piano playing for the silence were out of jobs. And then there was the issue of jukeboxes. For a nickel or whatever, people could command popular songs of the day from a record while they were out in public. So. So much for live musicians in bars and restaurants. Tensions built and built and built until 1942, when the president of the American Federation of Musicians ordered a strike against record companies over royalty payments. At midnight, July 31, 1942, no union musician could make any commercial recording for any commercial recording company. They could still play live on the radio, but if they were caught making a record, woohoo, woe unto them. This strike lasted until November 11th, 1944, so over two years. It was the longest entertainment strike the world had ever seen. And when it ended, the royalty issue wasn't really completely settled. In fact, portions of that dispute still linger today when it comes to American radio and record labels. It's a different story in most other countries, including Canada and the UK, where musicians are more fully compensated for radio airplay. However, once the strike was settled, Record sales took off, and they more than doubled in just a year. Bottom line, though, is that technology, and in this case, radio and recordings, won against musical purists. But in the end, 
Everybody won. And the radio was in the hands of such a lot of fools trying to anesthetize the way that you feel. Radio is a sound salvation. In a moment, more case studies of how music and technology came to blows and how technology eventually won out. It takes a long, long time to truly master a musical instrument. Naturally, you're going to be very protective of your skills and any livelihood you've been able to earn from your talents. But then along comes a new technology and it just screws things up for you. When the synthesizer started to become popular in the 1970s, musicians were very concerned. These new keyboards could not only emulate existing sounds, but they could make noises unheard anywhere else in the universe. The real panic came in 1982. On May 23rd, 1982, coincidentally, the 48th birthday of Robert Moog, the inventor of the first proper modern synth, the central London branch of the UK Musicians Union held a meeting. A motion was passed, and it demanded that synthesizers be banned. And the problem was this guy. I've been alive forever And I wrote the very first song I put the words and... In 1982, Barry Manilow was a huge star. And whenever he went on tour, he took an orchestra with him so he could faithfully perform all his big hits. But in the early 80s, there was a terrible recession Interest rates reached 20% and more. The disco boom was over, and for the first time since the 1930s, record sales declined year over year. Expenses and costs needed to be cut. Manilow couldn't afford to take a full orchestra with him on tour anymore. So all those musicians, violinists, cellists, brass sections, and so on, were replaced by a couple of guys with synthesizers. Their keyboards could produce all the sounds of an orchestra without the orchestra. The UK Musicians Union was aghast and outraged and began to push to outlaw synthesizer keyboards. Another motion was passed in November 1982, further clarifying their position, and it got a lot of attention and scorn at the time. The anti-synth faction was called the Moo Loonies in the press. This, of course, had little effect on the real world other than synth players were banned from joining the UK Musicians Union. Meanwhile, though, synths took off. The 80s were all about electronic music. Musicians discovered the power of these new keyboards, which unleashed new levels of creativity. Old-school Luddites were left to stew in their own juices. And it really wasn't until 1997 that the UK Musicians Union lifted their ban on musicians who played electronic keyboards. Synthesizer panic wasn't the only cause of concern in the early 1980s. Drummers were concerned that newly introduced drum machines, like the Roland TR-808, were going to put them out of work. If you want to know more about that, look for my ongoing history podcast on the history of drum machines. A bigger issue, though, was the one of sampling. By the early 80s, it was getting much, much easier to surgically excise bits of existing songs and add them to other samples in a new musical framework, thereby creating something brand new. Deconstruction of old, construction of new. Digital technology made this possible. The first digital sampler was called the EMS Musis, which appeared in 1969. Then, 10 years later, came the Fairlight EMI, a hugely complicated mess of electronics, 
that could not only grab bits of audio, but play them back in various manipulated styles and ways. The inventors of the Fairlight, Peter Vogel and Kim Ruri, were people who coined the terms sample and sampling. Artists and recording studios loved the Fairlight. Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush, Brian Eno, David Byrne, New Order, and Thomas Dolby all saw new possibilities in the technology. Producer Trevor Horn bought a Fairlight and used it for acts like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and The Art of Noise. And then there was Mick Jones. After he was kicked out of The Clash, he formed a new band called Big Audio Dynamite, and he went sample crazy. All right, so if samplers and sampling were cool, what was the problem? Well, other musicians weren't so happy with the technology, especially those who found their original works being sampled. Stuff that they wrote was being used by other people to make money, and they weren't getting compensated. This was breach of copyright, breach of moral rights, and just plain rude. Let me give you a couple of examples. In 1969, an American soul group called The Winstons recorded a song called Amen Brother. It features a seven-second drum bit by Gregory Coleman. This is the most sampled piece of music in the universe. Here's the original Amen break, followed by a couple of sampled manipulations that I'm pretty sure you'll recognize. According to the website whosample.com, that bit has been used in nearly 6,200 songs, and drummer Gregory Coleman never received a penny. He died homeless and destitute in 2006. Here's another popular sample. That's James Brown's drummer, Clyde Stubblefield, from a 1970 song called Funky Drummer. It's been sampled for nearly 2,000 other songs. He never received any royalties either. Before he died of kidney failure in 2017, apparently Prince, who felt bad for him, paid something like $80,000 of his medical bills. In the early 80s, it was the wild, wild west when it came to sampling. It was a new technology, and the laws surrounding it were unclear. What constituted a sample? How much did a sample have to be manipulated into something unrecognizable before it became something new? What payments were due to the musician being sampled? And how were those payments to be determined? How did song royalties need to be restructured? It was a total mess. And yes, there were lawsuits. In 1989, the 60s group The Turtles sued De La Soul for stealing, in their words, a portion of their 1969 song You Showed Me for a track called Transmitting Live from Mars on their Three Feet High and Rising album. That resulted in a $1.7 million lawsuit against De La Soul and their record company. Everything was settled out of court, but the message was clear. Do not sample without permission. De La Soul's early music was so sample-heavy 
that it took until 2023 for all the legalities to be sorted out and their songs could finally be made available on streaming music services. An even bigger lawsuit happened in 1991, when Gilbert O'Sullivan sued Biz Markey for an unauthorized sample of his 1972 song, Alone Again Naturally. That suit forced the withdrawal of Markey's album, I Need a Haircut, from the marketplace. Most, but not all, of the high-profile lawsuits over unauthorized sampling happened in the world of hip-hop and rap because that music so heavily relied on it. Imposing new legal rules and sampling literally changed the course of hip-hop by forcing rappers to find new ways to make music with new sounds. Meanwhile, woe to anyone who dared use a sample from the Beatles or ACDC. But, sensing an opportunity, record labels and lawyers moved in and began creating a legal structure and framework for clearing samples for use in other songs, as well as how much the sampled artists should get paid. A licensing framework was eventually worked out. This did, however, make creating new music using lots of samples cost-prohibitive. And here's the best example. In 1989, the Beastie Boys released their Paul's Boutique album, a recording containing samples of 105 different songs. The band did clear all these samples, but under some older rules, rules that no longer applied. Even so, they spent nearly $300,000 on sample clearances. No one has that kind of money to make such an album today. This one single features 20 separate samples, and all the artists involved, from the Commodores to Deep Purple to James Brown and the Suite, got a little piece of it. The sampling situation is pretty much cleared up now. If you want to sample something, you need to license it, or you're going to get sued. Once again, technology forced music into a new space where it was dicey at first, but it all worked out. Next up, CDs and streaming. It's hard to believe now, but one of the big friction points between music and technology came in 1982 with the introduction of the compact disc. It was not accepted with open arms by the recorded music industry. The roots of the CD go back to 1957 with some experiments in Italy trying to create a disc that could store video. A dozen years later, Philips, the Dutch company, started working on a replacement for the vinyl LP. They had a vision where instead of a stylus, information would be culled from a 20-centimeter wide disc with a laser. In 1978, Philips launched the Compact Disc Project. They soon found that Sony was working on something very similar and were encountering the same kind of technical problems. That's when, in 1979, the two companies announced that they were teaming up to jointly develop the compact disc. By late 1982, it was ready, and demonstrations began in Japan. The rest of the world started getting CDs and CD players in March 1983. And while the sound was superior to the vinyl records and tapes of the day, both of which sounded like garbage for a variety of reasons, there was major opposition to the new format. First of all, the recorded music industry was still in the depths of that brutal recession and contraction that I mentioned earlier. Wait, what? You, you want us to invent a whole new format while we're dying financially? Come on, you gotta be crazy. Second, there were supply chain issues. At the time, there were just two compact disc factories on the entire planet. And this created all kinds of problems. Manufacturing, a tiny selection of titles, shipping, warehousing, and pricing. A typical price for a CD in 1983 was $25. That's equivalent to almost $70 in today's money. Third, musical purists were dead against the thing. There's a story that a member of the staff of a high-end British hi-fi magazine 
resigned when he was asked to review one of the newfangled CD players. I have no idea why. And fourth, record stores hated the idea. They too were going through tough recessionary times. Okay, let me get this straight. We're already stocking vinyl LPs, EPs, 12-inch singles, 7-inch singles, cassettes, and 8-track tapes. Some of us also stock VHS and beta videotapes. So now you want us to hold an inventory of these new things? We're, we're going to need all new shelving to display them. We can't afford that. And besides, look at the size of a CD. There'll be a snap to shoplift. At first, there were less than 100 stores in North America where you could buy a CD. But Sony and Philips, which also owned record labels, kept up the pressure on everyone, and their arguments were simple. Number one, the margins on CDs are very high. You will make more money on them than you do on vinyl and tapes. This is the answer to our financial funk. Number two, more factories will come online soon, and that will bring down prices. Okay, that last bit was a bit of a lie, of course. Number three, people will come around when it comes to digital technology once they hear how good these things sound and how much easier it is to play a CD than a record. And number four, the shelving issue. That was initially overcome by packaging CDs in something called a long box. This was a paper or plastic package that was six inches wide and 12 inches long. This made it possible for stores to stack two CDs side by side in the same space as a bin for 12-inch LPs. Sony and Philips turned out to be right, of course. The CD brought the entire music industry out of its financial crisis of the early 1980s. People not only bought new music on CD, but started replacing their vinyl records with CD copies. And for the next 18 years, music industry revenues exploded. Money flowed like water. Couple of facts. The first CD to be manufactured was a test CD of Richard Strauss's Ein Alpen Symphony, played by the Berlin Philharmonic and conducted by Herbert von Karajan. The first CD to receive a public demonstration was Living Eyes by the Bee Gees on a BBC show called Tomorrow's World. The first CD to be manufactured for public sale was The Visitors by ABBA. The first album to be released on CD was a reissue of Billy Joel's 52nd Street. The first artist to have a million-seller CD was Dire Straits with their Brothers in Arms album in 1985. And the first major artist to have their entire catalog released on CD was David Bowie. Ashes to ash and fun to fuck it. We know Major Tom's a junkie. Strung out in heaven's high. Hitting at all time. The last tech versus music battle I want to mention is streaming. Okay, wait, that's, that's too narrow. Let, let, let's call this digital music files. Since the late 1800s, the recorded music industry was based on selling physical product to consumers, 78s, LPs, 7-inch singles, tapes, CDs, and so on. But with the rise of the internet in the 1990s, music became virtual and flowed through the internet like water. At first, the industry ignored this. Internet speeds were too slow and files were too big. But then MP3s appeared. Modems got faster. More people got high-speed internet. And by the summer of 1999, the summer of Napster, the industry was starting to panic about illegal file sharing. Oh, they tried to stomp things out with lawsuits. There was the infamous attempt by Metallica to shame people away from file sharing. The record labels tried to tame things with their own digital stores, but they all crashed and burned. Steve Jobs knew that the industry had been backed into a corner, so he offered them a way out with the iTunes Music Store. Eventually, everyone signed on because they really had no choice. The recorded music industry was out of their depth technologically, and Apple 
frankly, was the only way forward. And at one point, iTunes controlled 70% of the world's digital music sales. Meanwhile, a new technology was rising, and it was called streaming. On December 3rd, 2001, a San Francisco startup called Rhapsody began offering on-demand music on a subscription basis with a library made up of independent releases. By mid-2002, some of the major labels were licensing their music to Rhapsody. Streaming was pitched as unlimited on-demand music, an all-you-can-eat buffet. Instead of acquiring music, users accessed this buffet for a flat monthly fee. It was a brand new concept. Basically, renting music instead of owning it. You stopped paying your subscription and you lost any music that you may have downloaded. Once Rhapsody got into the game, others joined. Some were based on subscription models. Others were free but came with ads. There were many casualties. Dio, Mog, Songza, Slacker, Groovesharp, and dozens of others. But there were also successes. Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Prime Music, Tidal, Cobuzz, Deezer. Plus, there were streamers specializing in specific territories like India, the Arab world, North Africa, China, and so on. There was no holding back the technology. The record labels, which were completely opposed to streaming in the beginning, not only got on board, but actually invested in some of the streamers. Piracy was reduced to a fraction of what it used to be, and the licenses negotiated has brought billions to the recorded music industry. Streaming literally saved it from extinction. Music fans were a little reticent at first, you know, renting music instead of owning it, but convenience and selection trumped everything. And as I sit here, there are more than 110 million tracks available, which is a factor of a thousand greater than the number of titles found in even the biggest record store. And 100,000 tracks are being added daily, a number that keeps increasing. But of course, streaming has still not been universally accepted. It's still a technology that faces plenty of opposition. Musicians and composers, deprived of higher margin income earned by selling physical product, are angry at how little they're making from this new way of distributing and consuming music. But then there are others who make millions from streaming, which would include Imagine Dragons. Their songs have been streamed billions of times. So many streams, in fact, that they were able to sell their back catalog for $100 million. Technology and music will forever butt heads. The latest battle involves artificial intelligence and how it will affect music going forward. How will that play out? Well, it's too early to tell. The optimists say that AI will become an important tool like synthesizers and sampling. The pessimists say that it will severely curb the humanity of music and drive quality down and in the process subtly force music fans to accept terrible substandard music. But then we can point to what the Beatles did with AI and the song Now and Then. Using brand new technology, film director Peter Jackson was able to isolate John's vocals from a bad-sounding 1978 cassette demo. Paul McCartney and Ringo added new bits along with George Harrison's parts from a 1995 session. And the result was a brand new Beatles song featuring all four members, despite being separated by time and space and death. Here's something else to watch for. AI is not creative. Any program is only as good as the music it is fed, the human-created art it uses to learn. So shouldn't real-life artists be compensated for anything spat out by AI that use their creations to learn how to do that? 
This is going to be interesting and maybe a little bit frightening, but it's just another chapter in the ongoing battle between technology and music. If you want more ongoing history, there are hundreds of podcasts available on any podcast platform you care to use. They're all free, too. Download everything and then let me know what you think through alan at alancross.ca. Meanwhile, let's connect through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Threads, and you're invited to check out my website for daily music news and information. You can find that at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Oh, and don't forget about my true crime and music podcast called Uncharted, Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry. It's available everywhere, too. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. No technology has replaced him yet or me yet. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.